Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 10 years ago, Eric Stone Street had a nice career going in Hollywood, but never had that role to put him into rarefied air. One day, a friend of his came over and asked Stone Street to help him read for a part in a new sitcom. After helping out his friend, Stone Street himself decided to audition for the role of Cameron in My American Family. As we all know, he got the job, and that proved to be great not only for Eric, but for Kansas City as well. Stone Street was kind enough to sit down for the latest Casey Bobcast to discuss his career, his philanthropic work in Kansas City, what his future holds after Modern Family, and how he may have helped the Royals win a 2015 World Series championship. Here's my conversation with Casey native Eric Stone Street. I'm going to start off by telling you a story that I heard on opening day this year at Kauffman Stadium. I'm in the dugout. I'm talking to one of the Royals scouts, assistant GMs, whatever you want to call them. And he said to me, he goes, have you, have you had a chance to talk to Ryan Goins yet? I go, no, dude, it's opening day. I haven't had a chance to talk to anybody yet. He goes, you, you got to go talk to him. I said, all right, why? He goes, he goes, you know he was playing second base in game six when the ball fell between him and Batista. And I said, oh, okay, that's kind of a cool story. He goes, yeah, but here's how it happened. Goins tells the story. It's quiet, really kind of just a you know, it's quiet atmosphere going on. And then all of a sudden on the scoreboard, they go, hey, Royals fans, stand up and make some noise. And he said after that, he lost track of everything because the crowd came to life. He thought Bautista said, I got it. The ball fell. Kane scored. You're sitting here with your mouth wide open. Did you ever think a character that you played would help the Royals <laughs> win a World Series? Unbelievable. I, I hadn't heard it from that perspective. You know, that that now hold on. I'm confused. Was that the game I was at? Um, I don't know if, if were you at Game Six when Kane scored from first when the ball fell and you're talking against the the, 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 Blue, the Jays. Blue Jays, yeah, yeah the Blue but, Jays. Yeah, I was at that game and then they they put that up on the uh, screen and then they cut to me up in the the suite and I was like, I think I started a rally. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. I've never heard it from anyone else's perspective, but yeah. it quietly I was like, uh, that was that was awesome. That's yeah. pretty cool. Uh, they dust, I was just at the Royals game on uh, Friday night, and they dusted that old thing off, that old chestnut off, yeah. uh, and they played it again. And uh, like first thing I think of is like, oh, I got to record a new one. That, that that's that's first of all, that's a batting practice hat from I think fourteen. So I need a different hat on in, in the video. But that that's an incredible uh, story to hear from a player's perspective. Because you you know as a fan, which I just am, right? You never know if you have any effect on the outcome of the game, but. It definitely rallied the crowd. No doubt. And, and I always think, like, this is the stupid way to think at it. Like, if I'm not watching the Chiefs game, they have a better chance to lose than if I'm watching I'm totally them play. the same. I'm totally the same way. Yeah, <laughs> totally the same. And I don't know why it's like that, but I get that feeling. But the fact that, you know, when, when you were growing up, I mean, at the, I guess at the tail end of the Royals' good years into 1985, yep. and then 30 years of an abyss to, to the rebirth of where they are, to hear that you had an impact on that, that's got to be a cool feeling. It, right? was, it was amazing. And... Uh, <laughs> 
after after that game, Jeremy Guthrie sent me a text on a tweet or a direct message on Twitter and was like, "Dude, you got to come down in the locker room. You gotta you gotta let us give you our." They do they at that year they did a traditional uh, Ric Flair give me three woohoos and they said you got to come in and let us give you the the traditional woo woohoos. Yeah, and <laughs> Guthrie he he says just stay out here. I'll introduce you. You come into the locker room. The guys are gonna love it. And he introduced me. He's like, all right, everybody, here comes the fat guy from Modern Family. I walk in. I'm like, excuse me. I'm big boned. I'm not the fat guy on Modern Family. Anyway, they gave me three woohoos and I, I, and I hit the road. I, I, I get very uncomfortable in locker rooms. Yeah. It's really an uncomfortable place. Well, it's not my space. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like I, I get uncomfortable whenever I'm intruding someone else's work environment mm-hmm. when I'm because I was an athlete as a kid and, you know, wasn't good enough to play college or professional. I have a lot of reverence for it and a lot of respect for it. And I just get awkward and uncomfortable, not to mention all the nakedness. Like, right. I, it's very odd. Very awkward. You know, you, you walk in there and you're like, all right, you know, yeah. like, you know, and I do it for a living. I try to stay out as much as possible yeah. now. You know? and, it, and it really is like it's their space. And I just... I just prefer my athletes from a, a little bit of a distance, I guess. Uh, I guess I'm not going to complain, though, being in there after all those championship celebrations. That's I think amazing. I was at every champagne celebration they had did for you have those goggles? two years. No, I never did. I, did, I didn't know. I should have probably, but I didn't. I know, everything smelled like you know champagne. I would take it to the dry cleaner after every round, and they're like, all right, another round of cleaning champagne out of clothing. It was very fun for everybody, you know? That's incredible. I'm, I'm glad you told me that story. Uh, I've, I've only ever... <laughs> This is a very long story, uh, and I'm going to make it very quick. But when I was at the White House Correspondence Center, the first year I was ever invited to go because of Modern Family, we were hosted by ABC. I was at the table with the then former chief of staff for President Obama, uh, Dick, Dick um, uh, oh, Chicago guy. I can't think of his name right now. Just, just, just escaped me. But anyway, I'm at the table with him, and I told him I was, I was going to have a, a White House tour the next day at his, at his office. So if anything was moved around on his desk, you know, probably me that did it. Yeah. And uh, he's like, you're coming to the White House. What are you coming to the White House? I, said, I got a tour. Hour later, my tour is canceled. And I'm, I'm sitting next to his wife, and I, and I, I said, look, my, my tour got canceled. And I cannot believe I can't think of his name right now. Um, Bill, Bill Daly. Okay. And so the wife is like, Bill, 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 his tour got canceled. Bill, you got to get him his tour rescheduled. He pulls out a card, hands it to me. He says, next time you're in Washington, D.C., I'll give you a tour. I'm like, well, cool and all, but. I'm here now. I don't have any plans tomorrow. I, mm-hmm. I want my freaking White House tour, you know? Uh, he's like, give me a call. So we fill up our day. We go out. I go to a Capitals game that night. Go back to the hotel. Breaking news. Osama bin Laden killed. Oh. Yeah. Now your mouth's open. Yeah. Wide open. So it gets better. So I'm like, oh, my God. That's why our tour got canceled. It's because we were, we're in the middle of killing Osama bin Laden. And they didn't want anybody. White House. Well, that that is what it was. Um but I didn't get to hear that's for sure what it was until he's getting interviewed uh, in sort of a deconstruction of the day. And his accounts of the day is like, yeah, I'm sitting at the White House Correspondence Dinner. Some actor from Family Guy tells me he's coming to the White House. And I'm like, get out my Blackberry and say the hell you are and cancel his tour. Well, unbeknownst to him, they had forgotten to cancel all tours that morning. So like 30 actors in the Correspondence Dinner get that email 
that tour tours are canceled uh-huh. and then it goes on cnn jake tapper's covering it it's eric stowe street alerted the white house that the, the white house tours weren't canceled so that's my uh brush with with history uh uh the closest i've gotten to a, a political piece in my life but that was that was also also awesome. I don't think as awesome as uh, as as that story you just told me about rallying the royals. No, but that that's pretty cool, man. It's kind of a champagne celebration from a different point of <laughs> yeah. view. Yeah, we guess killed we say. killed a son of a gun. Yeah, and you got to have your White House tour. Did yeah. you ever get that tour? I did back? get the tour. I did get the tour. How was it? It was great. Yeah, I highly recommend going to the White House <laughs> and into the Oval Office and getting an apple from the President of the United States if you ever get the chance. If you get the chance, not yeah, everybody yeah, does. Yeah, 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 yeah. If it comes up, say yes. How's how's being on Family Guy treating you too? Yeah. <laughs> Family Guy's been Peter great. Griffin we're rolling gonna... into the tour, huh? Yeah, we're... yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to know how much for you, because I always say that 14-15 run for the Royals raised everybody's profile in Kansas City. It, it, <laughs> it made us a better city. We fell in love with ourselves again. The charity aspect of things went through the roof. How much did their run raise your profile on a national level? Well, you know, here here's the unfortunate side of being uh, from Kansas City and living in Los Angeles. I've lived in Los, Los Angeles for 20 years. I pay taxes in Los Angeles. And I'm a fan of sports. So in order for me to have gone to baseball games, I go to Dodgers games. So I was I was been a Dodgers season ticket uh, holder for, I think, six years at this point. Been a Royal season ticket holder now for four years, I think. But I had Dodgers season tickets, so I was going to Dodgers games. Well, the moment the Royals got in it, I've always been rooting for the Royals. Mm-hmm. I've grown up as a Royal fan, but I think we can all agree that some pretty dark days that I didn't have a tremendous amount to talk about, sure. to tweet about. It's like, so I immediately got called, you know, the bandwagoner because I'm, you know, have a Royals hat, you know. So it kind of sucked for me for a minute uh, because of those those things and I had to explain to people. It's like, let me, you know, let me. Let me remind you that there's an American League and a National League, and the only time that it matters is if the Dodgers and the Royals play each other. And I'm so clearly a Royals fan that I will be rooting for the Royals, you know? So I was super stoked, and it did. It really did. I mean, but that's what you, I, you know, that's why I get so upset with college institutions getting so mad that money goes to sports or money goes because athletics raise the profile, raise revenue, raise everything for. Uh, an environment and a culture. And I think you're absolutely right. When the Royals went on that run, you know, all of a sudden there was a team to get behind. And for good reason, I don't think Kansas city has a hard time getting behind teams to begin with, but given them being a winner, just, it really did. It just, it, it made the city enthusiastic. You know, the cool thing for me was just walking around in an airport with a Royals hat on and people randomly just coming up to you. Go, We're rooting for the Royals. We're yeah. pulling for the Royals. Like they became America's team for that, that time. They really, they really did. And, and again, I'm sure you probably got your fair share of it too. It's like, Oh, we're, did you go buy that Royals hat? Did you go dust that off the shelf? It's like people love to say stuff like that. It's uh-huh. like, you don't know anything about me. You don't know where I'm from, what I've done, who I know, what I've rooted for in my life. But, you know, I guess you get that reputation. Hollywood folks get that reputation of being a being a bandwagon. The nicest thing the Dodgers organization did for me, though, is is the owner of of the Dodgers. His wife is from Kansas City. No kidding. Yeah. And uh, last year when the Royals played at the Chav- at Chavez Ravine, I said, you know, I'm coming to the games, but I can't wear Dodgers stuff when the Royals are in town. He goes, wear your Royals hat and sit next to me in the box. So I sat next to Sandy Koufax, Mark Walter, in the Dodgers owner's box wearing my Kansas City Royals hat. And and I was like, Mark, you have no idea how much that helps me. Because it's like it, it, people have so many questions about like, 
are you a Dodgers fan or what else? It drives me insane. It's probably my number one pet peeve on social media is people giving me shit because I go. Can I say shit? Yeah, sure. Oh, you can say because shit. Because I yeah. say, uh, because they say, give me shit because I go. Like, do you understand that in order for me to watch a baseball game, it's 14 minutes from my house or a three hour flight. And given that I like baseball and going to the park and the pageantry and the smell and the hot dogs and all that. The Dodgers are my choice to watch baseball. It's like it doesn't mean that I've drained the blue blood out of my, well, the Dodgers or the Royals blue blood out of my veins. It's like I'm a baseball fan. But the cool thing about the Dodgers, though, is that when the Royals came into existence, Ewing Kaufman modeled their uniforms after the Dodgers uniforms, right? Same colors. Same colors, same basic logo. I mean, the whole nine yards, it's basically, except there's no red, obviously, in the Royals uniform like there is in a little bit of the Dodgers. But they they did it because... Because of the Dodgers. Yeah. And so you can use that too. Say, that's, hey, that's we love good you that ammo. Much. That's good ammo. That's good ammo. It is. And Drew Butera. I met Drew Butera because he, and, and Peter Moylan's because they were Dodgers. There you go. Because Drew Butera has the best hair in baseball, too. He is. He is. Let me ask you this, though. You, you've had a lot of great opportunities. You, you, and now coming back to Kansas City, obviously almost 10 years of modern family being on the air, you come back to your hometown and you have the opportunity to basically do what you want. Hey, I'm coming to town. I want to throw the first pitch. I want to hit the drum at the, <laughs> at the Chiefs game or go to K State or something like like that what's been the coolest opportunity provided to you because of the success of the television show well there people are kind enough to ask me to do stuff i i i don't i wouldn't i wouldn't ask to do it and um you know with the big slick stuff being out on on the field at the k you know again i just remind everybody listening I'm checking in constantly with 16 year old me and 15 year old me and 18 year old me and being like, can you believe you're on the field at Arrowhead? Can you believe you're in the locker room at Arrowhead or on the field at K? So those things are really cool for me now, but they're also just a really an amazing thing for me to remind myself of how over the moon ecstatic I would have been as a 15 year old kid. Those things are great. Um, beating that drum at Arrowhead is really exhilarating. I mean, hearing 73, 4,000 people, whatever the capacity there is, roar is really cool. I mean, if that is why you want to become a professional athlete is to hear, be on the receiving end of that. That's awesome. Um, just getting to know people, you know, getting, uh, you know, getting to know the, you know, the hunts a little bit in Clark and sitting with him in the owner's box at a chief's game, I, I think is probably way up there at the top. You know, it, it's, it's great because everybody loves you guys with this big slick thing, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, when it first started, I don't know that you guys expected it to be as successful as it is. And with me being involved in Noah's Bandage Project and you were out at the Noah's Bandage Project rally or a race, I should say, we, we've had such a overwhelming support for people to support Children's Mercy Hospital and Childhood Cancer. When you guys started Big Slick, how did you guys pick Children's Mercy and make that kind of the target of what you wanted to do? Well, you know, I joined Big Slick late because those guys were, I guess, recognizable before I was. Rob Riggle started it made the call to Jason and Paul and those three guys started it. And then I think they did two or three years of it before I came as a guest and then asked me to join. So I'm not sure what the thinking of how they chose, chose that, but all you have to do is take a visit over to children's mercy and understand what they're all about and sort of the situations that they are dealing with on a daily basis. And you realize it's a great organization, you know, uh, to, to raise money for because, 
as was said there at Noah's Bandage Project, the, the, the race the other day, you know, all of all cancer research, I think, believe 4% of it is for pediatric cancer because, you know, a lot of cancers in kids is rare. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it it's rare for a kid to get cancer. But when it happens, it can be, as we know, devastating. And especially, you know, brain cancer and um, is is a very understudied cancer amongst kids' cancers. So it's a slam dunk as far as what I want to do. I, I'd said there at the, at the 5K when Modern Family happened, I knew people would ask me to help out with one thing or another. And kids and cancer was at the top of my list of things that I wanted to do. So combining them is a no, is obviously a no-brainer. Yeah, and, and you have been like getting involved in a lot with Noah's and the Big Slick, and now you're doing some stuff with KU Med. It seems like you're just like, I'm giving back to Kansas City. Like, you don't forget where you come from. Man. Well, I, I don't ever want to, and, you know, I, 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 you know, I went to Kansas State, and it, the reason I'm saying that now is because it's, it's, a, it's a similar thing. It's like I figured out what I wanted to do in life, in Manhattan, Kansas. Like I went to college. I didn't really want to go to college, but I went to college and I found my path there. Um, and so I have no bad feelings about, I, I don't, I don't look at Manhattan, Kansas and think like, Oh, well, that's where, you know, that happened or what I have no poor, poor memories from being in Manhattan, Kansas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously growing up here, I had my ups and downs as a kid, just like everybody does. But, you know, I left here when I was, 18 went to Manhattan then moved to Chicago and Los Angeles. So my experience in Kansas city is not of an adult. I've never lived in Kansas city as an adult. I've never gone out to restaurants really without my mom and dad. I've never gone to, I've never been to Westport partying until I was probably 30. You know, I just never did it. So my point is, is my view of Kansas city is very, idyllic and childlike. So when I come back, I enjoy doing all the things that I did as a kid, going to games and sporting events and things like that. So now to get to experience that as an adult with whatever comes along with me being on TV, fame, whatever you want to call it, or money to be able to do things that I want to do is really fun. And I love, I love the people here. Mm -hmm. Like it's the Kansas city are, are, are my people. So I enjoy coming back here and, Everyone I bring here enjoys coming here. Everyone loves it. Every every one of those celebrities that we bring for Big Slick is always like, I can't believe how nice everyone is. It it really is amazing when when people come here. They get a totally different impression of Kansas City than what they think Kansas City is. I read something today actually in the Business Journal about how Kansas City is now like outpacing places like San Francisco for like new millennial workforce jobs because well it's affordable to live here. Yeah, you know, like they said you could work twenty nine years in San Francisco to get enough money for a down payment for a home three years in Kansas City wow. working the same type of job to get the money for a down payment. More and more people are starting to find out what a great place this is. It, it, really, it really is. And then you, there's a part of you, I'm sure you living here full time, it's like you want to keep it just that like kind of a secret because sure. you certainly don't want uh, a lot of what comes with being a popular place to live. But I send people here all the time. It's like, you know, friends that I have on the show that, you know, have kids and they're thinking of a vacation. I'm like, Go seriously, go to Kansas City, drive down to, you know, spend three, four nights in Kansas City, drive down to Branson, go to Silver Dollar City, hit Worlds. I mean, what a great, cool vacation right here in the in the in the heartland. And you meet great people and eat good food. What's not to love? What is your most like kind of fulfilling moment from all of the stuff you've been able to do with Children's Mercy Hospital and, and, and all the stuff you've kind of been involved with over the years? Is there one that really stands out where you're like, man, that really, really hit home with me? 
Well, you know, developing uh, relationships with a couple specific kids, you know, um, and, and having, you know, some meaningful impact in the, in their lives of, of, of hopefully making their lives a little easier through different friends of mine. Um, I think it was in the news a couple of years ago that uh, I met a kid at, at children's and I'm not, you know, I don't, I want to be careful with what I say, but you know, he was sick and is, is sick and doesn't travel very well and um, needed to get to Boston uh, for a, an appointment that he had. And I, I called my friend who owns Jimmy John's and said, I, I need your plane to get a kid to a doctor's appointment. And Jimmy's like, when and where? And, you know, he did it without even asking a question. So, you know, putting people together and um, using the resources that I have acquired by, you know, trying to find good people in my lives, uh, you know, as you can imagine, um, people want to be my friend sometimes and for whatever reasons. And I have to do my own navigation of what people's interests really are and things like that. And I pride myself on meeting good people and keeping them in my lives. I always try to say I don't have very many transients in my life. I, I, I vet, you know yeah, what I sure. mean? Yeah. I vet people and, um, and, and he happens to be one of those guys that I think is a good human being. And he did a, a solid for me and he got kids family there, kept his plane there for three days for him and flew him back. Wow. That that's incredible. I mean, like you feel, I don't want to say feel good about yourself, but you feel good because wow, look what we were able to accomplish for this kid. Yeah. This kid is getting the care that he needs just because I made a phone call and knew somebody. You well, know? yeah. And it's, and it's again, you know, hopefully that I convey when I, you know, meet people like that, uh, somebody that's wealthy or powerful or, um, <laughs> resourceful in any way that, they understand that, you know, where my heart is and what I'm up to and that I'm not saying, you know, do this for me and then I'll do that for it's, it's literally, you know, they know that it's coming from a good place. So in that way, that's why I'm saying it's like, I, I, I hopefully gravitate towards really good people. And I hope that's because I'm not a, a bad person myself. You know what I mean? Sure. Do you, do you have, do you set goals for this kind of stuff? Like in five years, I'd like to be able to do this for children's mercy or 10 years. I'd like to be able to do this. Do you, do you kind of have those goals out there? I have my own private goals personally with philanthropy that I'm still batting around really what I want to do personally. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, Rob and, and started a great charity with big slick and we'll go into our, it's our ninth year, their ninth year, our ninth year. And the next year will be 10. And, you know, I'd really like to find my my own thing, too, in addition to um, of what I want to do. You know, as you know, my sister works with special needs mm-hmm. kids. And I uh, I have really fallen in love with a lot of those kids and, and see how beautiful and joyful and honest and earnest and just loving that those kids are. And thinking about things that I can do to help as they transition into adulthood is definitely something I'm interested in. Um, I've seen a few things that are interesting to me as far as like helping, helping, you know, what happens to a really high functioning kid with down syndrome when he's 21, 22 and his parents are getting older and what, where do, where do those kids go? And so I have interest in that area of thinking of things like that. Um, you know, women's abuse stuff is very 
you know, something that I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in exploring a little bit, um, safe homes and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, so I, I have goals in my mind of what I want to do because I, I don't know that I want to keep like acting when the show's over. I don't know. I, I, it, it feels, it feels too good to, um, help people out selfishly. If that makes sense. I, I agree. I, I like, I, I don't get the same rush of adrenaline from anything else that I get from like a Noah's bandage project yeah. 5k or something like that, where you're involved and you see that good things are happening and yeah. you're helping somebody who could be less fortunate. And, and that's something I experienced and, and I owe it all back to the Royals. I mean, I did a dancing with the stars competition for, for the BMA foundation here in 2015 and getting out there and dancing for for Charlie's house was the most exhilarating thing I ever did. You get a thousand people in a ballroom chanting your name and rooting for you, and you're yeah. raising money and helping, and you're doing, and you're like, "Wow, I can't believe this!" Like it's hard to explain that feeling. I yeah. guess that's the feeling you get when you score a touchdown or hit a home run or something <laughs> like that. I don't know, but I've never had a feeling like that before. Yeah. It, it, you know, and I always say, you know, because people are so kind to Paul and Rob and Jason and Dave and I when we come back and want to thank us so much, but. I think I said at the press conference last year that while that's super appreciated and really nice for everyone to say, don't forget, we're getting something out of this too. It's not just this thing that we're coming and doing that, that we, we aren't receiving something in return. We're receiving, you know, those good feelings and good vibes and positive energy in the world. So in some ways it feels like I said, a a little selfish, you know, because it does feel, you know, so good. You know, the TV show, is obviously a hit. We know that it's going to be ten seasons, and then that's kind of going to be it. Is I think some of the the rumors have gotten out there a little bit, but I think for me, having a, a seven year old and an eight year old daughter who you had a chance to they see, they are so cute. By the way, oh thank you. <laughs> oh my gosh, they are adorable. The way your youngest daughter grabbed onto my leg, like oh my god, you melted my heart. Oh well, I appreciate that. But we watched the show together, and and people would probably think, oh my god, you're a bad parent or something, watching those kinds of programs or whatever. It has been, I think, one of the best learning experiences, not only for for me, obviously, but for my kids, because we're sitting there and the question comes up, why two daddies? (laughs) And and my wife and I explain it's a five-minute conversation, and they move on. It's become normal now in, in this world, and I don't know if we would be as accepting anymore as we are right now of that kind of culture where, with two daddies or two mommies, a gay lesbian lifestyle, if it wasn't for your show. I, do, you, do you guys understand the impact that you guys are truly having on America? Well, I, I think in the beginning, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I, we were definitely opening up people's hearts and minds. And, you know, we've all said many times, and Steve and Chris, the guys who created the show, said many times that our agenda has never been anything other than to try to make people laugh for 22 minutes every Wednesday night Mm -hmm. and now 38 times a week on USA. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, that's the main objective. And obviously, you know, the ancillary, the, 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 uh, affecting areas around that were to be to, you know, have conversations, start conversations for families and people ask questions and, you know, you choose how you want to address it with your family and, um, that we knew those conversations would, 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 would be started. And we're proud of that. And I've been very proud of the work that Jesse and I and the writers have done to create Cam and Mitch in a, in a very, uh, honest way. And the, the fact that they're gay, 
and what their sexuality is hopefully is shuffled down the list of just like in a what you would say typical male female relationship is is like you know they they're at each other's throats mm-hmm. they argue over the dumbest things they have the craziest stupidest like bitch sessions they have the craziest stupidest things happen to them and in that way that was the goal is just to you know quote normalize two men living together in a way that it's not even a conversation you know the flip side of that is like people will say like oh they never you know show emotion or or, you know affection or whatever and it's like well but you know the people people are always blown away by this it's like well tie it you know phil and claire kiss all the time and and the the reason Phil and Claire kiss all the time is because Julie is constantly kissing Ty. Like Jesse and I don't, as Eric and Jesse, we don't have that thing where Julie's just a kisser as herself. So she brings that to her character. Sophia and I are the same way. They're not like people that just like kiss all the time. Uh-huh. So people think it's like all that stuff scripted is like Claire fizz- kisses Phil. It's like, no, that's Julie doing that, you know, and. And Jesse and I just, while we love each other uh, personally as friends, we don't each think like, well, how can we kiss each other today in this scene? It just doesn't come up. She uh, She's spectacular on the show. I think Phil's spectacular. I think the whole cast is yeah. just so good. And I-, I wonder, do you guys like write the joke for the situation or do you come up with the situation based on a joke you have? Like the Stella situation where you name oh, the dog Stella. Yeah, like, that's a Stella! good one. Like is, is, is that one where you came up with the joke so you named the dog that way and you knew you were going to utilize that joke how does that's all interesting that, work? that you've zoned in on that someone else just asked me something about that and i used i used stella that as an example because i'll, give, is, I'll give my boss credit he he said does Stella come before the joke or is the joke written because the dog's name is stella i said we'll find yeah, out all yeah. right so let me think about that bill rubel i believe wrote that episode and bill rubel is a big fan of broadway and musicals and uh movies and pop culture and i believe i would have to look and see if we got stella i know that they wanted me to do some sort of brando-esque thing Uh so i would imagine if we're looking at it that stella came first they named the dog stella not knowing that ever that eventually I would be looking for Stella and then it just kind of falls into place. That would be my guess. But I would have to look at the order of that. But I could also very easily see this happening, which is Jay gets a dog. What are we going to name it? Uh, Okay. Oh, you know, so-and-so has an idea for Cam to do uh, Marlon Brando. We should name the dog Stella so that Cam in a white T-shirt could yell Stella. Like I could also see that happening because that's how complex the writer's room is and the writer's board are there's stories and ideas and nuggets of information all over these whiteboards and our writers work in two separate rooms. Uh, one room's led by Chris and one room is led by Steve, the creators. So I could see it either way, honestly on that. How, how involved are you guys in the writing process of the show? Um, not that involved in the writing, but you know, we're, you know, modern family, as I just had said this at a Emmy panel that we did a couple weeks ago is, you know, it's a living, breathing, you know, sort of organism. That's a Dayton Moore line for the way he describes his clubhouse. Really? Yeah. He always says, and, and I've used it numerous times because, and we'll get back to that one second, but he always goes, the clubhouse is a living, breathing organism. And if you affect one thing, yeah. you affect everything back when, in I guess it was 15 Guthrie wasn't pitching well and people were like, they got to cut Guthrie. And I'm like. You don't understand. If you take him out of there, the leader. Dy- yeah, right. The dynamic of everything changes, and guys in the front office and Dayton when he's on the show always says it's a living, breathing yeah. organism that you have to. Well, 
Thank you, Dayton. I mean, I don't. I, <laughs> maybe he stole it from you. <laughs> yeah, maybe he was at that Emmy panel. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but no, our show really is that because people ask the, the question, which is, do you guys improvise? Which I get the notion of that question, but in not to sound like I'm putting somebody down, but it's a it's a it's a very simple question given how much more than improvising we do, which is, you know, when we're sitting there doing the show, there's a, a creator always with us, Chris or Steve, depending on whose episode it is. And then there's the writers or writer. And then there's the director. And then now that we've been doing the show for so long, we're there and we have a say in things. So when we know a scene's not working, it's not like we're like, well, let's improvise, you know, a line. It's like, well, no, let's all huddle. And come up with the best change, the best add-on, the best cut, you know, because so many things have to do with what's cut in a scene. It's what makes the scene better. In our show, writers have always, they call it cutting your baby. You know, a writer will write a joke that just he thinks is the best or she thinks is the best joke they've ever written. And they have to let loose of them all the time because, you know, we also want a concise comedy, you know, um, our show's gotten faster over the years, too. If you watch season one, our show breathed a lot more than it does now. Now our show, you know, is really fast paced, so fast paced that my dad's like, I didn't understand what he just said. What did what did Nolan? What did what did he say? Why is everybody talking so fast? It's like <laughs> hilarious. And But he's not wrong. Yeah, he's not wrong. Uh, you know. Uh, a, a half hour comedy is 22 minutes or 21 minutes and 45 seconds. So that should be about 22 pages of dialogue. We'll have drafts that we read at the table that are 36, 38 pages. So they got to cut a lot and we got to talk fast. It's interesting that you say that as well, because our, our boss, he, he started like six years ago, but like he gave us like one piece of advice in six years and we still using it. You got to be fast paced, got to be pacing, pacing, pacing. That almost seems like a new generational thing now where everything's got to be faster moving and faster this and faster this to try to keep the attention span. Is that why you guys did that or did you just do that to fit more stuff in? I think they did it just to fit stuff more more stuff in because, you know, if I'm being honest, I think a lot of the comedy in our first couple seasons was driven by, you know, space, allowing Cam, allowing Mitch to say the line and have a feeling after it. You know, you watch that pilot. And then I think as the show got better or got popular, more popular, more critically acclaimed, in my opinion, what happened is, is the writers are like, well, the show's so good because of what we're writing. And I'm thinking, well, the show's so good is because you're writing really, you know, um, minimal stuff, meaning as far as amount of words, mm -hmm. you know, and then uh, you're allowing the actors to make the most out of those words. And what the show's gradually done is more words, less space. And so I think it's just a, a collision of who and why somebody thinks the show works. And in the end we have bosses and the bosses decide what makes the show works. And so we have faster paced shows with more words and and our creators don't even agree on that because one creator will be like hey can you up the pace of that when i'm like i really would wish i could slow it down but you can't and the other creator's like slow everything down i'm like well we're used to saying it fast you know it's it's back and forth so it's both and you know that's why i love when we do an episode there was an episode last year where um shelly long came back mm-hmm and it was a wedding episode, and it really reminded me of the first or first one or two seasons where everything was just kind of nice and 
nice and slow. Everything was slower. How much of these are based on real life experiences for you guys? A lot of them, you know, a, a, a lot of them. Danny Zucker, one of our main producers, and Abraham Higginbotham, and all built, you know, all of our writers bring in their own life experiences and mine their own kids' lives and wives' situations. I mean, the whole, the episode where Mitch and Cam have to call the fire department and um, Mitch changes before the fire department gets there. That's a real story that happened to Danny. They, um, she, I think his wife was having her gallbladder out or was having a gallbladder attack and he called 911 and um, he realized as she was going out on the stretcher that she went and like put a a lip on like a little lipstick and changed her clothes. And so the firemen would be impressed when they got there. And so that's a real thing that, you know, that happened. That's the other thing about our show is like, you know, people, you'll read things and you'll be like, I can't believe we're doing this. Or I'll have an opinion about a scene. I'm like, this would never happen. That's what's the brilliance of our writers. And that's the brilliance of a writer. And what a writer does is I assimilate it to a chef. The chef knows what tastes good. You just have to taste, you know, trust him. He'll tell you that blueberry jam and elk go well together and foie gras and you're like what i don't want that and then you're like oh my god how do i not want this the rest of my life and writers do the same thing it's like they just they know what people will find is funny and sure enough i'll be walking down the street and somebody will be like i gotta i gotta stop you i gotta tell you my favorite scene is blah 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 and i'm in the back of my mind going yeah i remember reading at the table thinking it's the dumbest idea i'd ever heard in my life and here's somebody telling me that exact same thing happened to them we'll get back to my conversation with eric stone street in just one minute but let me tell you a little bit about red door grill red door grill is quickly becoming one of the go-to spots for everybody in kansas city with three convenient locations there's a red door grill near everyone and with great specials almost every single day of the week there's something for everybody at red door grill we started off with monday with those five dollar burgers and we're talking about a half inch thick burger we're talking about a juicy burger that is so good and it's only five dollars on monday and then on thursday they have the epic jalapeno dip fried chicken that has everybody talking and asking why don't they serve it more and i always tell them it takes a whole week to prepare that chicken from the time it starts marinating on monday to the time it's flash fried on thursday to turn out so crispy on the outside and juicy and delicious on the inside that red door grill jalapeno dip fried chicken is perfection and of course happy hour every single day of the week monday through friday from four until seven you'll get great specials on drinks and appetizers as well and who could forget prime rib sundays where you can get the best prime rib in town for the best price and that's not all they're offering on sundays at red door grill you're getting half price bottles of wine as well we're not talking a bottle here or a bottle there Every bottle in the restaurant is half price on Sundays. So make sure when you're out and about, you check out one of the three Red Door Grill locations for lunch, for dinner, for happy hour, and everything in between. 159th in Antioch, 119th Street in Leewood, and of course a location in the heart of Brookside. It's Red Door Grill, and we'll see you at Red Door tonight. How how excited were you to do the George Brett episode? Oh, it was awesome. It was great. Um have you talked to him about it? I have not talked to him about it yet. No, I haven't <laughs> seen him since the episode's aired. So I got a text from our writers around the Christmas holiday saying, uh, do you know George Brett? And I just wrote back, why? He said, well, we're writing an episode where Mitch and Cam go to a couple's retreat in Arizona, and we want it to be next to the Royals spring training, and we want we want to write a part for George Brett. And I'm like, I know George Brett. <laughs> you know, write it. <laughs> and they said, would you 
ask him if he'd be willing to do it. And so we got on the phone and I, they told me what the part was. So I would be able to talk to George and tell him exactly what it was. So I just sent George, uh, you know, pretty concise text and said, uh, no problem if you don't want to do it or if you don't feel like it or can't, but you know, we'll go to Saberhagen, you know, (laughs) 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 uh, uh, but th- they all wanted George George Brett. Sure, I mean, it's George Brett. Right. So George Brett is universal baseball player. No matter where you lived, you rooted for George Brett. So I told him what it was, and he said, "I'm um, let me call you tomorrow." And he called me the next day, and I kind of explained it to him, and he said, "Yeah, you know, he he was a he wasn't like." Not interested, but he was George Brett cool about it. He's like, yeah, let me, you know, let me, uh, I can do a pretty good George when he's there and then I can mimic him right afterwards. It's hard for me to get it going immediately without hearing him. Mm -hmm. But uh, he's like, yeah, let me, let me see. I think, but I think it could work. Yeah, I think it could work. And um, he got his brother in touch with the producers. And next thing I know, he's, I'm going to do that thing. So he was out and he couldn't have been more excited he couldn't have been more gracious and nice and took pictures with everybody, had so many questions about the show and how it works. And, you know, he had been a fan of the show before sure. years ago that, that, I mean, you asked me what the coolest things that I've ever done or been a part of. It's like one that I just told this story the other night at dinner um, where George apparently was doing a radio show in front of an opening of a Dunkin' Donuts. And I was coming home or something like somehow modern family got brought up. And my good friend from, from high school called me and he's like, uh, George Brett knows who you are. He just talked about you on some radio show. I'm like, well, what? And he's like, well, they told him that the guy that plays Cam on Modern Family is from Kansas. He's like, no way. So then I was coming home for the All-Star game. That's a good one. Playing in the celebrity softball game. Yeah. Did you K. boo Matt Castle too? I didn't boo Matt Castle. No, but everybody else did. I know. That I was liked sad. Matt. I did too. I'm like one of the only ones. First of all, I like Alex Smith too. I'm a sucker for quarterbacks. You know what can I say? I'm a I'm an Alex Smith fan. Are you yeah. being for no? I'm okay. an Alex. Always yeah, have. I don't yeah. know what side. Yeah. You, yeah, I'm a I'm. Here's what I am: is I'm anti fans thinking they know a freaking thing about playing quarterback in the NFL. But we all do. We all do. <laughs> but you know what? You're you're at least paid to talk about it, and you know, like you're an an, an educated an opinion. Anyway, we digress. Yes. I'm, I'm very, very anti people that jump on, you know, that isn't that, that it's not their job to do that. Sure. Twitter is basically what I'm talking about. Yes, people Twitter. attacking Alex Smith, um, <laughs> from their private egg account that they don't have the balls to, you know, even say who they are telling him that he sucks. It's the worst, man. I got so many like death threats on Twitter over football and things like that. It's like, like, like really bad things. And I'm like, I, I can't believe you would talk to people like this on Twitter. Yeah. It, 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 it drives me nuts. It's why we're a doomed society. As far as I'm, I'm concerned, it's like people are just going to not say anything to anyone and we're, we're no, no one's going to communicate anymore because mm-hmm. you can't say a thing anymore, especially if you have a, a blue check mark by your name or if you have a following at all. I mean, you, uh, that's why you being in radio and being able, you know, being paid to give opinion, it has to be a little fulfilling except for like 
what happens when you say something people don't agree with. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't agree with it. They come at you like it's like night and day. Like, I don't know if you heard the story. We were talking about it the other day about this this fan, Knowles Fan 22 or whatever, sent a death threat to the Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers GM because they didn't draft the guy from Florida State. <laughs> and they're like, well, what's Our guy should... that we got? No, some guy that they drafted number 14. I don't know who oh. it was. And and so they passed on him at number 14, and he fell to somebody else. And, and so this guy was mad, so he sends a death threat via Twitter. Well, now they're investigating. I said, jail this guy. Put him away, because maybe that'll send a message to everybody else that you can't be doing this kind of crap. Well, listen, I, I mean, other than the fact that our jails are overcrowded and we don't put even real criminals in jail anymore when they do anything bad, uh, I would agree with you. But they need to do something to create uh, incentive not to do it. Mm-hmm. Whether it's um, a harsh talking to or um, something, but people look, people can. Everybody has a voice now, and then not only does everybody have a voice, people without a voice, if they happen to get retweeted by somebody with a voice, now has a voice. So now you can see how one tweet with five people following him was retweeted by somebody with 30 people retweet you know following him and now it's somebody picks it up and now it's like the the paper trail is back so now that guy's got a voice yeah it's like oh, I'm, I'm twitter famous it's like whatever so i just shut up i just try to keep it happy and positive i'm an instagram guy now i tweet every once in a while but i post pictures on instagram and i just try to mess with people i love messing with people sure but people don't get that i'm messing with them that's the other thing so I'm a comedian. Well, I'm not a stand-up comedian, but I'm a I'm a professionally paid funny person, and people don't even realize that you're being funny. Everything's so serious. So serious. You want to you want to be frustrated. You want to really get yourself frustrated and worked up. Go to one of my Instagram posts, and I delete most of these comments, so they're not even there anymore. Of me uh, cooking a steak, and look at how much hatred I get for eating meat from vegans. Oh my God. In that culture, that those people, which is, I'm like, I'm like, isn't this America? Like, can't you be a, a vegan and me like respect you for doing that? And also being kind of envious of it. Like, wow, that's, that's great that you don't eat beef jerky. Have you tried beef jerky? Because beef jerky is really freaking good. And if you've eaten beef jerky and cannot eat beef jerky, teach me the secret. Yeah. Because I'd love to know it. But like, all, I'm all for you, but they, they come to me and, and like just, and I just delete them. Just delete them. You have to. I mean, and, and I swat I, them first a little bit, and that's where people are like, I used to be a fan of yours, but you're rude to your followers. I'm like, okay, so let me explain this to you. This is a, a place that I've created in the world called my Instagram page that's my property, my, my area. And it's the equivalent of you walking into my home saying, hey, you're an ugly fat ass. Opening my front door and saying, you're an ugly fat ass. And then you expecting me not to defend my home, like my property, my name. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's crazy. Yeah, I had that the other day. Somebody got mad. At me. I don't know what. It was. I think I, I said soda machine. And some guy goes, what are you from St. Louis? We call it pop around here. I'm like, well, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up calling it soda. I hate the term pop. I'll call it what I want. And, and you're in your 60s posting this on a Facebook post. And also, like, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Well, that's where I get really frustrated with Kansas City people a lot. If if I'm wearing a hat in a picture that I post and it's not a Kansas City hat, people you are like, shit, don't you? Sell out. Where's your Royals hat? I thought you were raised royal. Ro what, what's up? Like it's it's mind boggling. I wear I have this hat that I like. It's an L.A. hat. It's not even an L.A. Dodgers hat. 
I'm not a skater. I'm not a surfer. Never been on either one. Well, I was on a surfboard for an episode of Modern Family and couldn't even balance on it. But anyway, whatever. Shut up. Uh, I have a hat that's L.A. And the bottom portion of the L is a surfboard. And I bought it at a surf shop. I have it in brown. I have it in blue. I have it in red. It's a cool hat. It's vented in the back. It breathes. It's nice. It's got the bill that I like. It's not too deep. I love the hat. I wear that hat, and all it says is, like, where's your Royals hat? Why don't you have a Royals hat on? thought you were raised royal. Okay, bro, take it easy. Step back. It's okay. See, you're getting me worked up now. No, it's ama- It's just really is amazing what people Wait, get themselves you asked me. Up you would ask me a question, and now I can't I don't know. We were talking about George Brett and being in the, in the Modern Family episode and how cool that was, and you got into him and him signing autographs for everybody. Or oh, he was, was just great with everybody, and he had a good time, and afterwards he... He, we, we, I got him to sign a few scripts with all the cast and George Brett and, um, I, I can't, it, anyway, it was great. Is that your favorite episode? What, like if, if you had to say your favorite episode is which one, which one would it be for you? I always go to the first one, that, um, pardon me for sounding like a douchebag real quick, but that I won my M, first Emmy for sure. Fizbo, uh, because I wanted to be a clown when I was a kid. My dad named me Fizbo the clown. And I remember very clearly when I got that episode, it was raining at 20th century Fox Brad uh, Walsh and Paul Corgan wrote the episode, and it's titled Fizbo. I had given them an article that was written about me when I was in fifth grade, and they based, you know, sort of the notion of bringing Fizbo to Modern Family off that article. And I called my mom and dad and said, you guys, you're not going to believe this, but uh, we just table read a draft of Modern Family called Fizbo. And they're like, what? I mean, I was very emotional and... Because it's a it's it really is that full circle moment of me figuring out, you know, I wanted to be a clown as a kid. I didn't know that that meant that I wanted to be an actor. You know, I didn't that those two things didn't match up to me. I wanted to be a clown in the circus. And then I went to K-State and forgot kind of all about that and then did theater and then fell back in love with the idea of being a clown in the circus. So I auditioned for Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Clown College twice when I was in college. Seriously? Oh, yeah. How'd that go? Hey, well, I'm... You're not a clown. I'm not a clown. <laughs> As Garth Brooks says, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. True. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's what I wanted to be as a clown in the circus because it came to Kansas City every year around my birthday, September 9th. And um, so I auditioned twice, didn't get in, and then did theater and kind of fell in love with that process and fell in love with a lot of the people that I was meeting and dealing with. I'm like, these people are cool and fun and different. I was a fraternity guy at K-State and... Um, you know, so I got into to theater and did a play and people said, you're pretty good. And I was like, OK, cool, thanks. And then kind of as my my senior year did a pretty dramatic play called All My Sons by Arthur Miller. And people were like, you're really, really good. And I joke, but I'm very serious in that I was kind of dumb enough to believe that anybody coming up to me in Manhattan, Kansas, saying I was good must have known what they were talking about because I was like, well, they they must be right. So I moved to Chicago, and that's you know sort of how I started my career. And you got to work with Tina Fey up there too. Like she was your teacher. She was my level two teacher. Yeah. What was that like working with her? Awesome. Well, you know, knowing Tina Fey before she was like the version of Tina Fey she is now, meaning famous and wealthy and you know successful. She was all of that without all of that before. You know, you met her and you just thought she was a star. She was so funny. Um, she was on the main stage at Second City with Rachel Dratch, a, a girl named Jenna Jolovitz, and Scott Allman, 
Kevin Dorf and um, Jim Zulovic, who's passed away, but um, they were on the main stage when I was a host. I was like, I would seat people at the Second City. And she was my level two teacher. And that class was big, a uh, big character class. She would teach you how to like build character from, you know, sort of the ground up or sorry, whatever, like different avenues into building a character. Um, I, I ask you this because I make fun of it all the time. In Modern Family, are you from Missouri because you want to make fun of Missouri? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Because I say Missouri all the time, and people get so mad at me for saying Missouri, yeah. and I love it because yeah. it just really irks everybody. Well, people were like, hey, where do you want to be from in Kansas? I'm like, I don't want to be from Kansas because I knew that was going to become like a giant bullseye on right. Cam's back of like, from Kansas. And I'm like, no, let's make him from southern you know, Missouri. I forget the sequence of how it all came out of where he was going to be from, but I definitely fought against being from Kansas. I, I honestly think the way we decided he was from Missouri and I I could be completely wrong um, is that there was a script where they said something, Kansas. Oh, well my home back in such and such Kansas. And I was like, no, Make I want to make it Missouri, and then I said Tonganoxie, Missouri, uh-huh. and I'm pretty sure that it was the the writer had written into where I was from. They knew I was from Piper, and they just picked Tonganoxie, Kansas, like where I was going to be from. And I'm like, I don't want him to be from Kansas. I want him to be from Missouri. So now he's from sort of it's kind of changed. I'm from Grasshopper, Missouri. Uh-huh. Um, it's kind of morphed. Um, but yeah, people give me shit about that all the time. It's like. Why didn't you make him from Kansas? I'm like, bro, slow your roll. If you just read an article, you'll see that I've very clearly said it's like I'm protecting the great state of Kansas by being from Missouri. <laughs> it makes me laugh every time. It's like yeah. the little things, you know. And you know what? Missouri, most Missouri people have a really good pers- sense of humor about it. They're like, we love when you make fun of Missouri, and you know. And Dana Powell, who plays my sis- sister on the show, Pam, uh-huh. she's actually from Springfield, Missouri. So uh, she went to Missouri State, and so. Yeah, it kind of all worked out. I, 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 I just didn't want him to be from Kansas. No, you couldn't have that. You mentioned earlier that once the show is over, you may just decide to be done with acting. I mean, Ty Burrell has talked about going behind the camera and doing all that kind of stuff. Do you get worried that you, you can't be anybody else other than Cam? Well, Ed O'Neill quickly, you know, taught us early on, given that he was Al Bundy for so many years, that, you know, if if that's what happens – um, you know, he said you have to, in his his polite way of saying, look at your bank account. You know, there's other ways you keep track of how life's going. And if people call you Cam, and that's the worst thing that happens, it, you're still on the positive end of, of everything. So I get it uh, that that could happen. Um, I'm not worried about it because I don't have this desire to, like, reinvent myself, like, false like falsely and like in some sort of weird rush you know you look at a guy like brian cranston who was famous for you know uh malcolm in the middle and then he just kind of did his own thing for a while and then all of a sudden he's you know on breaking bad woody harrelson is a great example of somebody that everybody knew is woody or i mean um uh what's his name on oh it was woody yeah woody yeah, yeah, woody. woody yeah um on cheers i talked myself out of that for just a second um, and then he just goes away and does his own thing. There's plenty of actors that have done it. And, you know, it's one of the advantages of having the job that I have and 
you know, the good fortune and that I have of having a great job is that I don't, I don't have to like when modern family wraps after 10 or 11 seasons. It's not like, okay, I got to find a new job. And I don't have that desire within me independent of financial gain of me of like, I don't need to, I don't need to like know what it's like to be more famous. I'm not saying that I'm like super famous. I'm just saying like, I get what that feels like. So I don't need to like try to become Brad Pitt or, you know, Michael Jordan, whoever you think of as the most famous person in the world. So I'm good on that level, you know? So, um, it just depends on like what I feel, feel like I want to do. The other problem modern families created for all of us as actors is our hours are phenomenal. Our co co-stars are great people. Our crew's incredible. The work is top notch. So we've, we have this sort of weird utopia there that, you know, now how are we going to best it? And I worry given my lack of patience with assholes that like if I go and get on another show and I'm dealing with a co-star that's like won't come out of their trailer or something like that. It's like, that's not going to go well for me or them. Sure. So <laughs> I, I worry like how that would work. Cause I would have to have like, then I would have to be like, well, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? What kind of family life did you have? Like, I'd want to know who I'm about to go sign up to potentially do another 10 year show with. I didn't have that option getting into modern family, but Ed set the tone there. Ed's the number one on the call sheet. So, you know, there's a saying in our business, you can't be a bigger asshole than the, the, the asshole who's number one on the call sheet, you know? So if, if number one's not an asshole, number two doesn't get to be an asshole. Well, that sounds dirty. No, but that's a good way to look at yeah. it. Yeah. I like that. You can't yeah. be big. You, the boss is, you know, because that's good lesson for every line of work. If you know the number one guy at your job isn't an asshole, then you can't be an asshole. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right. And and you really then start to learn. You can sort of kind of figure out company culture based on how those threes and fours and people are to their their employees. It's mm-hmm. like if they're well, then that must mean that they're being taught that being an asshole is acceptable behavior. Is okay. If you didn't get the job as Cam, where are you? Ooh. Man, that's tough because it was one of those moments uh, I'd moved out to Los Angeles in 1998. And so I'd had what most people would consider kind of a successful career up until, you know, my audition for Modern Family. I had recurred on a couple TV shows. I'd done over 100 commercials. I was paying my bills as an actor. I owned a home. So I was, you know, making it. creatively i don't know that i was that super stimulated uh because i was like you know when we were shooting the pilot of modern family i was overhearing what everybody else was doing jesse had was going to play buddy the elf on broadway if it didn't go julie had another pilot she was in position two for ty had another pilot sophia had a holding deal with abc so she was fine ed is rich as fuck so he doesn't care like what right you know, it doesn't matter to him if he's probably cashing was... bigger checks from, <laughs> from uh you know from married with children yeah, then you know he's like okay the show doesn't go i just go back to my house with a bottle of wine and a pot roast and watch mma i'm good you know it's like i don't need to do anything else <laughs> so i was the one that was like uh, i got a sears call back on tuesday like i i really didn't have it. the kids some of the kids were had more stuff going on in their career than than i did and 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 that's not to minimize what i had going on i was proud of my career at that at that point but having said that i was in sort of one of those valleys that i think all actors and all performers go through where you're just like well what am i doing you know like what's my what's my arc here um 
And I was on the phone with this character actor named Marshall Bell. You can Google him. He's, um, if you watch uh, Total Recall, he's Quado in Total Recall. He's from Oklahoma. He talks like this, licks his teeth a lot. And uh, we had worked together on some IBM commercials. And I was like, Marshall, I don't know what I'm He's like, you're in, man. You're in. What, what else are you going to do? You're going to go type in an office somewhere? And this was before my audition for Modern Family. And he's like, I, I was like, yeah, I know. And then, you know, he kind of talked me back and just reminded me that, you know, once you're on the merry-go-round in Hollywood, you're kind of on, like the people that work kind of just keep working. And you just need to hear that every once in a while. And that I had shown that I was able to get jobs. I booked another, I booked other pilots and I continued getting jobs on TV. So I was in, but I wasn't creatively in stimulated. I hadn't built a character, you know, for myself. And then modern family came along and a buddy of mine came over and asked me to help him prepare his audition for his role of Cameron on my American family. His name's Matt Corboy. He's still one of my best friends. And he said, Stoney, will you help me with this audition? And I said, sure. So we sat down and, went over it and he's like, dude, you should audition for this. I'm like, yeah, I know I, I should. And so he left and I called my manager and I'm like, Hey, Matt was just here and he's auditioning for my American family. He's like, and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll get you in. And I went in and they passed, you know, meaning that they, they said no, not in a like you suck way, but just like, yeah, you're not right for the part. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks later, I think they called back and said, they still are thinking about Eric's Reed. Can he come back in clean shaven and dressed more appropriately? And I went back in and again, they passed and said, no, thank you. And then three days passed, I believe. And then they called me back in and test had me test. Um, and that's when I got the part. So I think what I would probably have done based on that conversation with Marshall Bell is that I'd still be working and doing my thing. And, uh, Although now all my friends that are still, you know, kind of busting it and grinding it out and their stories of commercials and how the world has changed so much, I don't know that I I could still be doing it at that point. I was never tethered to like being like a successful actor. You know, I was never tethered to like making like making it that that was never in my plan. My my sort of naive plan, you can call it just sort of my golly shucks personality for a minute. Kansas is going to go try acting out is that I thought, well, I'll just go until somebody tells me, uh, hey, this is a restricted area. You you can't come in here anymore. Like, oh, okay, yeah, thank you so much. I just was testing my bound. You know, like I just felt like somebody would let me know when I had exceeded my limitations. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. And that's really how I approached the business. And I thought, well, until somebody just tells me <laughs> definitively, you're done, I'll just keep going. Jerry Seinfeld said, you know, acting, I think he said it's like kind of waiting in line for the Super Bowl tickets. You know, there's tickets. It's like, do you have the do you have the nerve, the time, the patience, the energy, the money to wait while everybody else kind of gives up and just outlast everybody to get that ticket? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I was doing and uh, probably would have stuck to it. But I may have found something else that would have interested me. I may have been producing. You know, I may have be found, you know, found that I wanted to be a director because I've kind of always just had an open go with the wind kind of thing, you know. Helping the Royals win game six against the Blue Jays or becoming Cam, better accomplishment in your career. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's amazing. I, I think 
I have to go with Cam because if I wasn't, hadn't become Cam, I wouldn't have been able to help the the Royals win. Nobody would have cared about some guy on the screen standing up and and starting starting that starting that rally. Now I want to help the Chiefs. I just want to help. I just. What do you think about him this year? Oh well. I think about them the same thing. I think about them every year. I'm in love with the team, and I think we're going to be win the Super Bowl. But that's how it's been every every year. You know, I I loved our draft. Um, I did too. I don't know any of the players, but I know like they filled positions of need, and I'm like that works for me. Well, I mean, from a fan's perspective, watching the draft this year, and given our off season, not clearly we believe in Pat Pat Mahomes. <clears throat> if they would have drafted a wide receiver first, a running back first, a quarterback second, or even a tackle, I would have been like, what in the hell? Like we lost that game in my opinion. Cause well, we didn't score enough points. Okay, fine, fine. But defense, defense, Stunk. defense, God, they sucked. It sucked. Yeah, they're awful. <laughs> How and, do you blow an 18-point lead at home in the second half is just beyond me. Well, because we didn't have a first down in the, in yeah, the second Yeah, that hurts. Half. That hurts. It does. But, again, defense, I, I firmly believe defense wins. You know, I didn't, Buddy, Buddy Ryan said it, right? Mm-hmm. Defense wins championships. So, uh, I believe that, and I believe we have the pieces in place. I'm very excited about our wide receivers. I'm very excited about our running back situation. I mean, Spencer Ware doesn't get hurt. We just got Kareem Hunt just quietly sitting over there. Yep. We have no idea what a, a badass he is. I love our offensive line. I've become – I did you see I went to dinner with our offensive line the other night? No, I did not. No. See, I'm not on the Instagram oh, quite yet. Oh, you get on the Instagram. I got to get on the Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, kids the kids are doing, are doing these. Yeah. I know. I understand. Uh, I love our offensive line. I was – you know, my favorite player growing up was John Alt. Left tackle for the Chiefs. Yeah. 76. And so if I could imagine what I wanted to be as a kid, it was like a guard in the NFL. John Lutz, you know, Lutz, Dave Zott, Tim Grunhardt. I, I wanted to be one of those guys. So the fact that now I like know some of the Chiefs offensive linemen and can like ask them questions and talk to them and they're interested in what I do. I'm interested in what it's a, it's a cool exchange. And I think, you know, I was I said this to them. At dinner, I'd never watched the draft from that perspective where I was so actively rooting for them not drafting a lineman mm-hmm. because I didn't want any of my friends to potentially have to like get, <laughs> lose their job. Yeah. Like, I've, I've never watched it that way. Would you let Larry Tardif do a surgery on you? I, is he a, is he a surgeon or is he a medical some doctor? Sort of doctor, yeah. Well, I know he's. Would, a would you let him look at you? Or yeah, whatever I'd let him, yeah, yeah, I'd let him check me out. I'd yeah. let him, I'd call for him. <laughs> <laughs> I I think the NFL. I told I told uh, the Chiefs they need to do a funny commercial with uh, Tardif where the NFL needs to. I'm giving this away for free for you, Larry. L, what do they call him? LDT. LDT. Uh, yeah. LDT. Yeah. Where he's during the game constantly dealing with the guy across from him asking him about like something that's bothering him. He's like, yeah. So at night, you know, I, I get this burning sensation in my throat. It's, it's GERD. It's GERD. You have GERD. Like he's constantly diagnosing the guys he's blocking on the field. Wouldn't that be great? That would be and awesome. Then I, and then when Vince Wilfork was still in the league, I thought it would, it would be great if it ended with Vince Wilfork and them walking off. And so he's like, 
it's 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 hemorrhoids, Vince. It's, it's hemorrhoids. You got a hemorrhoid. Sounds like you got a hemorrhoid. I hope you guys love my chat with Eric Stone Street. He really is doing a lot to help folks right here in Kansas City. And who knew that a Hollywood character could have an impact on one of the greatest sports moments of our time? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.